0: Welcome to the Specify Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Tats Nakagawa of Castagra Products. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and construction industry. Today's guest is Liz Crowdham. She's a product management innovation expert in the coatings and building supply space. All right. So Liz, thank you. Thank you for being on the show.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah. So there's lots in your background. I'm interested to asking a question about, but I noticed when you went to Rutgers that you studied Italian studies. So what was there? You lived in Italy, did you? I did,
1: yeah. So I did my junior year abroad in Italy through the Rutgers uh, Junior Year Abroad Program. That was uh, six weeks in a small town called Urbino. And then we moved to Florence, and I was actually matriculated in the University of Florence for a year. So still continues, you know, a couple of decades later, continues
0: to be one of the best years of my life. Oh, wonderful. What What were some really fond memories?
1: Oh, my gosh. I mean, just everything, you know, whether there was a group of us, the records program at the time was about, I think, 35 people. And as we're talking, I'm thinking of all these things now that are just kind of coming back to me. But there was a core group of about five or six of us that we would always get together. And they had us living once we went to Florence, they had us living in apartments. So we were, you know, on our own. And so my apartment, the one that I shared with my roommate was the closest to the, we'll call it the inner city. So we would all meet in our apartment and we would have, you know, probably six or seven people all around this table for like four. And we would have what we call these spaghettatas, like these big just pasta events where we, you know, we'd cook all from scratch. And then we would go out and we'd go on just on these long walks around Florence, you know, across the Ponte Vecchio. And I'm not sure if you've been to Florence, but we just would, we just stroll, you know, the evening passeggiata, you know, like the evening walk, a group of us, and it just was incredible. So that, my gosh, I just all of the history. I lived literally three blocks on the same road on, um, it's called the uh, the Church of Santa Croce, the Chiesa, Chiesa di Santa Croce. And that's where Dante, Petrarch, Boccaccio, Machiavelli, Galileo where they're all supposedly buried and I would remember walking around this walking down this street and walking to that church and just thinking wow hundreds and hundreds of centuries have gone by and all of the people that have walked here where I'm walking now and just it was just such a such a blessing such a wonderful experience and then just the general culture and the language it was it was outstanding and then I went back I went back to that same church, went back to Florence, I guess it was three years ago on a visit with my father. And now you have to, you know, you have to pay to get in. Back then it was just, you know, you just walked in, it was an active church. I mean, it still is active, but now you have to pay to get in, wait in line and, and, you know, just all of these things. It's just, it's it's a little different now, but different world today. But Boy, it's one of the best experiences. I highly recommend anybody that has kids thinking about <laughs> studying abroad. I would send them abroad for sure.
0: Wonderful. One of your early experiences. I guess you were working for a company in New Jersey. You were international sales and marketing. How did you How did you get into that?
1: So my first company was uh, William. What was called then William Zinzer and Company. And for those in the coatings industry, you'll recognize, you know, the Bullseye 123, BIN or Cover Stain, those are the main products, the flagship products. So I got into that because I was actually studying for my PhD in Italian literature at Rutgers at the time. And I did everything except for my dissertation. And um, But I needed, I'll call it a real job. And I, I applied for this position uh, for International Sales and Marketing analyst. And that was with uh, Zinzer. and I got the job. And from there, really, I never went back. I didn't finish my dissertation because I stayed in corporate America. Now, that was the beginning of my of my formal corporate career. And I was doing international sales and marketing for Zinzer. And I was man- I eventually uh, got promoted to sales manager and I was managing sales and distribution and training everything in Latin America and
0: Italy. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so you're, you're with this coatings business and I mean, did it come naturally to you? Was there learning curve? Like what was your experience like those uh, early years?
1: Oh my gosh. It was totally not natural for me. When I think back, I had to make, I had to really, I didn't know what a primer was. I mean, and that was my job was selling paint primers. No idea what a primer was. I had helped A friend of mine, when I was literally in like the fourth grade, paint her backyard fence, you know, over the summer, that was a chore her father had given her. So I came over one day. That was my experience painting. In my household, there was no DIY work ever done, nothing like that. So I didn't have a point of reference. So I had to learn it and I had to study it. I had to learn that and I had to learn sales. So neither, you know, I was not coming from those worlds at all. But I'll I'll tell you, it's actually a great question because that experience of having to learn that from like literally ground zero, that's what really formed me going forward. And I learned very quickly a couple of things. So this was, you know, in the mid-90s, a woman doing international sales, uh, selling in the coatings industry, you know, there weren't that many women doing that. There were a couple and maybe sundries and here and there, but. Not a lot. So to be taken seriously, I had to really learn my stuff because I was going down to Latin America. I was doing product presentations, and then I would do training to people, to men who had been, you know, doing this work for 40 years. And I just knew what they were thinking. You know, who's this? You know, young woman. And I was, you know, very young. And I, who was this young woman coming up here telling me how to do my job and what products to use? But the way I got around that was, you know, I really learned, I became very technical and that served me over the long-term, learned my products inside and out. And I also brought forward this concept of, okay, we're elevating the coatings. There's nothing wrong with what you're doing, but we have other options here. And we were bringing innovation down. At the time, products like Bullseye 123, which was um, the first universal interior-exterior water-based product in the market that didn't exist really down there certainly not that quality BIN shellac based primer wasn't down there and the problem solving that these products could could offer was incredible perma white i don't know if you're familiar with perma white mold and mildew proof bathroom paint at the time it was bathroom paint gosh that did not exist so I was bringing this new technology, which really gave credibility. We did a lot of testing and sampling, free sampling and gave, really gave, you know, the, that customer base an opportunity to try it for themselves. But that was the start. And there was, you know, there were challenges along the way with being a young woman coming down and and presenting to audiences of all men, but, you know, like anything you, you, you work to overcome them and, uh. And I think I did.
0: (laughs) I had no other choice. (laughs) It's amazing what happens when you have no other choice.
1: Yes, it really is.
0: Yeah. So I noticed that, you know, from from the coding area, you've branched out and done marketing and branding and other areas as well, including what sort of stands out to me is a a toy company. How how was that?
1: I worked for two toy companies. Um, I got into the toy industry. So I was with Zensor for seven years. And uh, doing international sales. And that was, um, you know, I was ready to move on uh, after a while. And I went into the toy industry. I wanted to get into at that point, I wanted to get into what I was calling domestic marketing. I first went into the pet supply. So that was Hearts Mountain. But from there, then I went into Reeves International and they make collectible toy model horses. And under the Briar brand, primarily the Briar brand. So, if any but any little any women are watching as little girls, you might have had you know these collectible horses. I certainly did. I was a horse lover as a child. So that was that was very fun. That was a lot of fun. You know, it was a it was a very cool team that we were working with, and working a lot with uh, China. So I learned a lot about you know importing and you know working you know, sourcing out in China and getting product in and all that. So from the business side of it, it was it gave me a great experience. But it was just a lot of fun to work with, you know, toys and and um, and these horses. And, you know, we got to see movie premieres. And so it was that had horses in them. And uh, it was just a great job from there. Then I went to another toy company called Shellcore Toys, which unfortunately is no longer in business. But they focused on preschool toys and they had their you know, they were selling to Walmart and they were doing a lot of private label. But I will be honest. And I've been after that, I I came back to the coatings industry. But I have to say that toy industry as an industry is, at least at the time was super cutthroat. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, (laughs)
0: give give me an example of cutthroat. But what what, what do you mean by that?
1: It was just really challenging, you know, to get to get product in there was I, I feel like there was a lot of duplicate efforts, but if you weren't one of the top, top brands, you just, you couldn't make headway really. And I think that was one of the biggest challenges that we had, but going to toy fair for a couple of years, that was, that was incredible to see, you know, the, the toy industry's, you know, national or international event and just being surrounded by all these toys. And that was a great experience overall, but again, every, all of these positions would I would build on them. So I'd I'd take a little bit of of each job with me onto the next.
0: Absolutely. Now, you spent a lot of time in the B2B space, but this is more consumer product marketing. What were you able to take in from consumer product marketing into like the B2B world? Because the toy side is quite on the extreme end of of, you know, consumer products. Like you said, there's lots of fast moving things on competition and distribution. What sort of things were you to be able to take maybe from an innovation and marketing perspective into maybe some of these more, let's say, call them a little bit more straightforward B2Bs uh, marketing efforts?
1: As I was going forward, one of the big realizations I had for me was when I went from codings into pet supply, and then into the toy industry was, this was a big one for me at the time, was just, you know, the business model is the same in terms of, you know, because they were were all manufacturing companies. So I was always, I've always been with manufacturing companies. So the model was the same in that you've got your box stores, whether it's Home Depot, PetSmart, or Toys R Us at the time, and then you have your independents. So for me, that was just like this huge. You know, when I went first into Pet Supply, I was like, Ah, oh, how do I get, how do I learn this? And then once I could wrap my mind around, it, oh, they've got the independents or the veterinarians, and then you've got your you know your Home Depot, is Pet Smart. Then it just all fell into place, and I've kept that with me. It's just, it's really about managing your your channel, but and also your end user. So. That's just, I think, something that became a template going forward for any industry I was in. I kind of create these buckets, you know, who am I talking to? Who am I innovating for and what are their needs and how do I get it to market? What's going to be, you know, the path to market from a channel perspective? You know, am I going to a big box? Okay, so I understand then that any big box is going to have, from the costing perspective, is going to have a lot of back end, you know, because that's just how it is. And then they're going to have distribution, warehousing, all of these other areas i need to consider and if it's independent then i know they're they're concerned about what i'm putting into big box and then all of their challenges not having the volume purchases and the volume you know pricing breaks that the big so all of these things they all came together and that became one big template that i you know i continue to use to stay to whatever i'm doing
0: wonderful and then you moved to a, a very large uh, coating or a paint company and I, I noticed you said you reinvigorated, managed a uh, concrete coding platform and you're sort of, I guess you had some new initiatives and stuff like that with uh, new product development and innovation. What, what were some of those things that were happening there? What were you sort of optimizing or improving?
1: So that was with Restolium. So Restolium, if I can give a little background here, Restolium had acquired. So in, in 2006, I went back to, to Zinser they had just recently been acquired by Restolium, who was their sister company. So I was uh, still in New Jersey and then Restolium asked me out to the corporate office in Illinois in uh, 2010. So when I went out there, then I was working on this, um, on the high performance coatings platform in managing these concrete products, garage floor coatings and basement floor coatings and um, exterior concrete pavers and driveways and things like that. So the challenge there was really to kind of get some growth going. Um, it had been stagnant for a little while. And the big push there was for me just to create a new product development roadmap. And so the really great thing about working at Restolium was they are so, they were, and they continue to be so innovation focused. So I learned so much about one, the importance of innovation, and then two, how to execute it. And I'll share a little story back in, if you remember the Great Recession, everything is now the great something or other, but the Great Recession of 2008 and into 2009. So end of 2009, I was still here in in New Jersey and we had, I think it was the VP of Sales and Marketing come out and the uh, Director of Sales come out. At the time, and they were talking to us. We were having our own brand planning session, uh, Zinger Brands, and they came out to give us, you know, the talk and everything. We had not yet merged formally with Restolium. We we're still in the process of doing it, and so they came out and, in the midst of, you know, all these, yeah. You know, I remember the 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 VP started talking, said, you know, everybody's everybody's going to Home Depot, everybody's going to Lowe's, and all of their customers saying, we're going to. Take price increases. You know, all the manufacturers, paint manufacturers were going to their customers saying, you know, due to the economic situation, we need to raise our prices. And he said, we're not going to do that. We're going to, fo- we're not going to be like everybody else. We're going to focus on innovation and we're going to drive innovation. And that's how we're going to not only help ourselves, but we're going to also help our customers get through this. And so I was new to innovation at the time. And I remember sitting there thinking, are you, are you sure? You know, everybody's people are losing their homes. Then you're talking about, you know, innovation. And, you know, then you start talking about this one product, which would eventually launch at a $249 retail for a kitchen update. And I just remember thinking who's going to pay two two $249 right now, you know, and sure enough, we launched it. It was successful and pretty much from that point on you know this major retailer would look at us and say oh hey it's Rust-Oleum. come on in the buyers would say come on in you know what innovation do you have to show for us today and from then on it was just like this it was there's a lot of innovation and i, I learned so much from it so in that garage floor coating space you know we always looked at bringing that was an exciting time we looked at different kinds of innovation for garage floor coatings for different looks to kind of grow that space, it was a challenging space because, you know, garage floor coatings required certain prep. You had your DIY customer. That was pretty much a DIY product. Yet you could have, you know, some challenges with DIYers and the prep and things like that, but we really wanted to expand it and come out with different looks. So we, we worked on that on a metallic look, which was, it was ultimately stopped literally at the, at the last minute because uh, this is one of these, um, you know, one of these, uh, I'm not going to say a failure, but it was one of these innovations that went almost to the point of launch, but then we had to pull back. We had created this this really cool looking metallic garage floor coating and it went through the entire process. You know, we, we made it, um, it was on stability and literally we had raw materials coming in like the next day and we were going to make it the day after that and i get a call from r&d saying their bench sample failed stability like right then and there and i was just like what <laughs> so yeah so we had to uh, take immediate corrective action but that's the kind of work we we're focusing on and you know i think it's okay to share that share that story but it's one of the realities of innovation you know not everything goes your way and you have to be prepared to to address that that we would also look at other kinds of innovation. For one of the other things we're looking at was a clear sealant for concrete pavers. That was also mold and mildew proof. So, for example, when you are, you know, you're protecting your pavers, and certain parts of the of the country have more moisture than others, and you've got pavers in the in the shade, and then they get that um, the mold growing on there, and the different algae, I should say, algae. We were looking for a product that would be able to kill that algae before it would, you know, form and grow on there. So all of these different kinds of, you know, products for concrete coatings, this is the kind of work that we were doing. And then when we're looking at that, we didn't want it to be, you know, the challenges of coming up with a product like that. You don't want it to be on the surface because it can get, it can be slippery when it So creating a penetrating coating that was also algae resistant. These are some of the, you know, I was kind of a, um, kind of a paint geek. So I like this conversation. I like these talks. I can get technical, but these are the things that we work on behind the scenes, you know, trying to come up with um, great products that solve product, uh, solve problems for the homeowners. And then on the other side, then there's work that we would do for the professional side as well that,
0: you know, in just rough sense for way back, what was kind of the ratio of things that came from outside, like, you know, customers wanting things and roughly what were kind of dreamed up on the inside? What was that mix?
1: That's a good question. There were a lot of buyers saying, mm, wouldn't it be nice to see this? And you, And you have to act on that. Then there were other products that would come forward that we would sit in our innovation brainstorming sessions and say, "Okay, how can we solve problems for for the pro, for example?" So I would I would probably say the pro products were more of us thinking really truly problem solving, and the DIY products, mm. you know, a lot of them came from you know the big box buyers uh, saying, you know, I'm I'm being asked for this, or from wherever they're intelligence came you know they would ask us for something and and sometimes those products were successful sometimes they weren't that when a buyer asks you for something you pretty much you pretty much say yes we'll do it and you try to and then you figure out you don't try you you figure out how to get it done
0: yeah that's 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 the part you make it happen somehow
1: (laughs) yeah 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 you have to yeah
0: that's great. I mean, any other things? I mean, we, we talked about innovation. What is the key steps within the innovation? Like you, you talked about the innovation pipeline or new product development and phases and stuff like that. What's the key? Like, where do people get it wrong? Like when, when people come to you saying, hey, I want I want to be more innovative, where do you start?
1: For me, my process is it's linear to a large degree. So I think. Mine starts with innovation. Well, I think there's two starting points. One is, are you, you know, are you ideating for innovation or are you ideating just as a brand extension? So, you know, brand extensions are easier. You know, do you need another color? Do you need to modify something in it? So that kind of, you know, that's that's an easier path. You You look at what you have and you look at any gaps, anything that the competition has that you don't have that you need to have to fill out a program. I think that's a little easier and more direct when you're looking for innovation and in creating that pipeline. That's where I, I find that's the most, the more exciting of the two. And that I think begins with the brainstorming session. So again, when I was at Restolium, you know, they brought in uh, Mike Mitchell. He's a guru for innovation and ideation and, and so much more, but he came in and he gave us innovation training, brainstorming and ideation training sessions. And so I learned a lot from him, but one of the things that I that I carry with me all the time now is that concept of brainstorming and bringing in diversity, diverse thinkers to to that brainstorming session. So, for me, it starts with the brainstorming. And if I'll again, I'll I'll just go back to the a Rust-Oleum example. So, if I were brainstorming for a new product, we talked about DIY. So let's talk about brainstorming for a, a professional end user product. You know. I'd want to have a, a couple different people from the company. I'd probably want to have somebody from sales. I'd want to have somebody from manufacturing, somebody from R&D. And then I'd also want to have somebody that has nothing to do um, with those, but has DIY experience. Again, just internal, but still some experience. And then I'd want to bring in a contractor or two, somebody who's trusted. And you know, they sign a confidentiality agreement, because otherwise, if we're just brainstorming in a bubble, you know, it, it, you, you don't want to find out if you've gone through all these measures that have a contractor or two say, "Well, that's real nice, but we can't use it because of X." For me, innovating for a professional end user, I think a lot of times is about problem solving. It's about how can we give them a relevant product that they need, but how can we help them also do their job? more effectively and more quickly. So what we want to avoid are callbacks, right? Anybody in the trade knows you don't want to do a callback. It's expensive. It's damaging to your reputation. So we want to give them a great product that is um, easy to use. It solves a problem of some kind and they can use it quickly. So in my case, I was typically working with primers. So, you know, a, a fast dry primer, that's one of the characteristics that any product I was working on would have to have, right? Because we want to get them in and out. We have the primer dry quickly so the top coat can, they can apply and then move on to the next job. I would look at different, you know, bring in different ideas um, at times from, so for concrete coating, we looked at acid staining at one point, you know, acid staining, you really need to know what you're doing to do it. And then there's all these different issues. We ended up not, not going forward with it, but the process is interesting you know, I remember going to the world of concrete one year and sitting in on a couple of these uh, seminars where you had these these guys uh, the, that are doing acid staining and they're just making these really beautiful designs in concrete floors. I don't know if you've been to any of these seminars, but, you know, they're really amazing. And so... Taking that you know, all of that information, and then it's like a, this, it's almost like this funnel, right? You've taken all of this different inspiration from parallel industries, if you will, and then bring it down and then see how you can you know I shouldn't say this out loud, but I always kind of say kind of dumb it down, right? So bring it down to if I, if I can't be up here because that's not who my end user is and that's not my price point or my installation. What can we take from that, and then make it work for my end user, right? And make it within my price point. Yeah, simplicity. (laughs) Yeah. So you know, there's a lot of different ways, but it starts with that with that brainstorming, and you know, brainstorming process being what it is. And you take your key ideas, you bring them back to the leadership team or whoever you know needs to make that uh, give that approval, and then you socialize it. You make sure that sales wants it. Number one got to make sure that sales wants it because if sales doesn't want the product, then why make it, you know, they're not going to sell it. So sales is my first customer all the time, internal sales. So once you, you know, you've socialized it and you've got everybody on board, then you put it through your regular stage, gate get process or whatever you're working with. But I think um, it's really important that you're kind of doing the check and balances, checking all the details early on your price point, making sure that your business case is solid before you get too far down the road and align making sure that your business case is aligned with you know corporate objectives because if you're going off over here but the company is over here then you know there's a there's a major disconnect and that's just been a waste of time and money and resources for the company and it's, it's just not good for anybody so i think a lot of the success of any new product development or going through the process is going to be is it aligned with what the greater organization wants to do? Is it supporting profitability? Is it supporting those margins where we need to be at? And then, you know, that what's the stretch? Can you hit that stretch profitability goal as, as well? If you can hit all that comfortably, then, you know, you can go forward and then come out and be successful. And, and that's kind of in a nutshell, you know, but um, I think that's that's kind of the meat of the product development process. Then you have all of your inner the development conversations and the development work with your cross functional teams Com- great communication it has to be there because if you're not communicating and everybody doesn't understand what the needs are you know R&D needs to know exactly what that product needs to look like or the engineering team depending on what you know kind of company what kind of product you're making the people making the nuts and bolts of it they really need product management to say you know create this spec sheet and say this is exactly what I need. These are all the features and, and this is what I need it to do and why. This is what it cannot be. This is the price point and give a range of you know, pricing of, of where, am I, where I'm going to price it and where you need to be cost wise. And I found that the best R&D partnerships are with those chemists or the engineers, again, depending where you are that understand that relationship, because I've seen some really great chemists that come up with these really great products, but they're like three, $4 over, you know, any kind of acceptable cost. And so, you know, you see them get disappointed when you're like, when you have to reject it, when you have to say it's great product, but can you take, you know, $3 out of it? (laughs) (laughs) And uh,
0: You don't need this chemical.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't need to do all of that, but, (laughs) but you don't want to squash that inspiration and and that devotion that they have to innovation either. The best relationships are when both sides understand what the other side needs, then you're working together and you save a lot of time and it's just a lot more effective.
0: Yeah. So basically, you know, if you are a person that's handling this process, you need to know a little bit about the total process. And then you have to work hard to communicate, to create alignment so that it matches up on many different uh, sort of verticals and horizontals to make sure that goals are being met.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you need to know as, as product manager, it's my belief that you are the center of that product's universe. You are that center spoke, the hub and the wheel, I should say. And so everybody needs to be able to come back to you and you need to be able to understand what everybody is going to come back to you about. What what questions do they have? What are their needs from you from perspective of information? You need to be able to provide all of that willingly and not at the last minute, and then just be there to help everybody through that process. But that, that means that you need to really understand your product and your industry and really know what. You know what makes sense uh, to put out there. So it's a challenging role, and sometimes it can be frustrating because anything could go wrong. And it's always always coming back to product management, you know, to solve the problem. Even if if it's out of our control or something that's not even our area, it's going to come back to product. And so we just have to have a tough skin and and get that. But at the same time, it's it's exciting that you know you're the center of this uh, products universe and you know, people are coming to you for their uh, for your uh, recommendation and, and advice on how to manage problems.
0: Yeah, for sure. So you have a lot of experience, You've you've learned a ton, if you were to go back to the early part of your career, and provide advice to your younger self, what would that advice be?
1: I think part of it would be, don't be so serious. In the beginning, I was so focused Like, like I started talking about before being a young woman in this industry in the nineties, you know, it wasn't easy. That's a whole other conversation, but, you know, there were challenges that I had to overcome and overcome them professionally, both within the company and, you know, outside of addressing things that were, you know, that came my way. So I, I had a, I had a really thick skin and I think I'd go back and say, look, you can be professional and know your stuff and, and all of that, but. Also, have a little more fun with it. So I think i'd I'd say that, and I'd say also, you know, speak up more, and um, you know, somebody gave me advice once many years ago, you know just keep your head down, do your job. And that was good advice, but I think I took that maybe a little too seriously, and so I, I should have probably lifted up my head a little bit more. you know, maybe ha- again, had a little more fun and uh, socialized a little bit more. I was all about the work you know, as you get older, you realize, you know, you, you need more balance, even in the workplace, you need that balance. So um, it's okay to laugh and have fun and joke around.
0: Oh, well, wonderful. Thank you so much. Wonderful advice. And I appreciate you uh, sharing uh, what you know. Oh, it's been my pleasure.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Specified Growth Podcast today. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash tats talks for video of today's podcast hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes
1: this podcast is a part of the c suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c sweetradio.com